You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Here we go again. How many threads connect the good actors with the bad actors, even if some of the good have done some bad things? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, my guest is Michael Benson. He's the author of Gangsters vs. Nazis, uh, Jewish Mobsters, Vital Nazis in Wartime America. Um, he is considered one of the world's most popular true crime writers. Mr. Benson has a BA with honors in communication arts from Hofstra University. And Michael Benson, Larry Davidson, you're welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Larry. Thanks for having me. So when I, when I read for pleasure, it's one thing. But when I read to set up interviews and do my homework, I believe there are two stories. The stories between the pages of the book and the stories outside with the writer. Because I think if we learn about the writer, we get insights into what they write about. So if you don't mind, humor me for a few minutes. Take us back to where you grew up, your influences, and what brought you here today. Because you published <coughs> a lot of books. You've done major media. But I'm curious about where you came from. I grew up at the end of a dirt road in a town called Chile, New York. It's C-H-I-L-I. Rest of the world pronounces it Chile. We pronounce it Chile. And uh, I have an origin story as a true crime writer, which, which is not really a happy story, but it's the one I'm stuck with. When I was nine years old, my babysitter and a, another girl from down the road went swimming in a swimming hole behind my house, back, field by, back by Black Creek, and uh, didn't return. They were found a month later, horribly mutilated. It was a Jack the Ripper type crime um, near some railroad tracks, and the case was never solved. And I started writing about that when I was 11 years old, two years after it happened. And 45 years later, I'm happy to say it became um, my personal favorite book of all times, The Devil at Genesee Junction. I teamed up with the mother of one of the victims and a uh, local private detective and went back to my hometown and we solved the crime to our satisfaction. So that, that's, that's why I went into being a true crime writer. But even as, as a kid, my heroes were writers. Name, and, a, name, uh, a, name a few if you don't mind. Who are your heroes? Earl, Earl Stanley Gardner. Right. Uh, Raymond Chandler. Okay. Uh, when you're getting into true crime, I, I was a, a big fan of Mark Lane, who wrote Rush to Judgment. Oh, I remember and, Mark Lane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, and what I really wanted to do was, was write true crime and I wanted to go back and, and solve this case. And I, I was smart enough, at least I had wisdom enough to write a few true crime books before I took on the case back home so that I would know how to do an investigation. Um, now the, over, over the years, the true crime market has gone soft, as they say in the publishing business. I suspect that's largely because now there are TV channels that show true crime 24 hours a day. And instead of opening up a book and reading about it, you can just flip on Investigation Discovery Channel and it's right there for you. So I, I made a little bit of a, a jog to the, to the left and then to the right and ended up being a, um, an organized crime writer for Kensington Books. Right. I teamed up with... Uh, with Frank DiMatteo, who is the son of an actual gangster and gives me all sorts of street cred. So when the idea for gangsters versus Nazis was brought to me, it was brought to me because 
I already had a background in a lot of these subjects. I had, I had edited a boxing magazine for several years for the Star Law Group, a fight game magazine. So I knew about the boxing world. I knew about organized crime. And I had written about World War II for a magazine called the Military uh, Technical Journal, which sounds very, very uh, academic, but was actually a almost a fanzine for, for boys who were into military stuff. Um, the original outline for Gangsters versus Nazis was put together by a professor in Tel Aviv by the name of Robert Rockaway, who, for reasons I am not privy to, was not interested in writing the book. And, I, and if he had taken the job, it would have been horrible for me. Um, but I think that the, the the world might have missed out on a little something too, because it, it probably would have been an academic book instead of an entertainment and may not have reached as many eyes and hearts as, as my book did. Let me share something with the listeners, a conversation I had before we started the conversation with you. We're talking about the series on Hulu called Only Murders in the Building. And you talked about things going soft. My daughter is a big fan of true crime podcasts. Is that kind of moved the conversation along that people are paying attention now to podcasts and they can be good, bad or indifferent? There seems to be a very large following. Oh, sure. And, and I, you know, I'm I'm 65 years old, and the whole concept of podcasts is still a little bit a little bit foreign. Is it is it like radio? I mean, and my wife wonder, is it a radio show? Well, I think sometimes it's a radio show. Mostly, just you get it on your computer, right? Um, and there are a lot of them. And luckily for me, I've been asked to do quite a few podcasts. And often I go in, I have absolutely no idea. Like you're on Long Island, I know that. Yes, we are. Uh, so, right, right down the street from Yapank. That's correct. Which is an, an important location in my book, which I guess we'll get into. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I'm also I, I grew up Catholic, and I have a large, large Jewish following from this book. I've been sort of adopted into the family. Uh, they thank me for being their friend, although, you know. Telling right from wrong was something my mother taught me a, a long time ago. I don't, I can't believe anybody would read my book and side with the Nazis. Now there have been, of course, some some reviews of people who I don't think did read the book, but just assumed that, uh, and the anti-Semites is what they are, uh, just assumed that this was a book about killing people who wanted to keep us out of World War II. And that's okay because the killers were Jewish. And it's a completely mis misrepresentation of, of what happened. First of all, no killing. Right. No killing in my book whatsoever. Right. It's about fist fights and brawls and brouhaha's. Uh, there's one gunshot in the entire book, and I think it was a mob thing, not a not a gangsters versus Nazi thing. So look, let me do this because every once in a while I grab onto something that stays with me at three fifteen in the morning because I have sometimes I I wake up and start thinking about sure the conversation, the interviews, and the books that I read and are reading. And your book is in that in that category. This is really. An interesting, acute observation. I'm wondering if you can speak to whether you agree or disagree. Somebody once said, history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. Because you're going back to the 1930s in America. And one of my notes that I have is examples of then and now. And I think about your book and it raises issues that happened then. But they seem to be happening all over again. Maybe history is not repeating itself but it certainly is rhyming. That's right. The, the same things are happening, but they're happening in a drastically different world. 
Uh, my the, the story I tell about 1938 America, in which Jewish gangsters, with some involvement from the U.S. judicial system, uh, went at the German American Bund and the Silver Shirt Lodge, who were speaking about uh, not not just anti-Semitism, but uh, Hitler-like uh, calls for a solution to the Jewish problem, which, as we know now, and as many of the gangsters knew then, is a, a discussion about an attempt at genocide. Um, so I, there's 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 no moral ambiguity. In the, the gangsters are the heroes of the book. Nazis are the villains. And it doesn't make any difference what the gangsters did before the book starts or what they did after the book ends. Their actions within the book are not only heroic but and certainly pro-Jewish, but they are patriotic as well. Uh, I think the famous quote from uh, an Italian gangster once was, uh, just because I'm a hood don't mean I ain't no patriot. Well said. You did something that I considered a bit of genius, the way you set the book of the beginning wow. and the end. You did, I'm a big movie fan, and I'm telling you where I'm going to go. You did Fade In and Fade Out. There's a, a great movie called The Gangs of New York, Leonardo DiCaprio, Daniel sure. Lewis. Because my biggest takeaway from this book, beyond the obvious about gangsters and Nazis and what's going on in the 30s in America, the book is really addressing the immigrant experience. Going back to the 19th century in New York City, the yes. gangs of New York talk about that. You know, the nativists who were there first and the gang and the fights for territories. And you also, this book, in a sense, is also a battle for territories and hearts and minds. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, uh, the Italian mobsters get all the press but back in the day, the Jewish mob was very powerful. Uh, the bosses of the five families all listened to, to Meyer Lansky uh, because he had the ear of Lucky Luciano. And uh, Luciano was in charge of just about everything. So Jewish men made money and wielded power in U.S. cities uh, because they were involved in crime. And the reason they did that was because other avenues of pursuing happiness had been cut off to them. Um, there were only a certain number of jobs that Jewish men were allowed to have. You could be a tailor or a butcher. You, know, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't go and uh, be work for an insurance company. You couldn't go to work for Ford Motor Company, that's for sure. Uh, Henry Ford being a, a notorious anti-Semite. So, and there's another thing, I, I, I quote a, a fellow uh, saying that, you know, his grandfather was a gangster. And if he had lived his life in Israel, he would have been called a survivor. Right. But because he was in Newark, New Jersey during prohibition, uh, they were all breaking a law that nobody liked anyway. So let's reset. This is Larry sure. Davidson. The podcast is Artful Periscope. My guest is Michael Benson. His new book is called Gangsters versus Nazis, How Jewish Mobsters Battle Nazis in War-Term America. Once again, I'm going to come back to, if you don't mind, then and now. Right yeah. now, on various aspects in the political spectrum, the word fascism and Nazis is being thrown out like an old term, like manhole covers. Sure. So can you speak to what is your understanding of fascism then, and is it coming into play again in America in a different form or fashion? Well, yeah, well, fascism is uh, a, a word that 
means that the the minority feels that they have the right to rule uh, because the majority is somehow uh, uh, lesser and unable to to uh, be in charge. So as long as, for example, in America, as long as white Protestants are the majority, uh, you're not going to hear any talk about fascism in America. But the second that all of a sudden we have a situation where the minorities can get together and, and make themselves into a, major, a majority that outnumbers the wasps of America, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who are used to being in charge, right. uh, then you have an issue because the people who are used to being in charge do not want to give up that power uh, just because they no longer have the numbers to win elections. That's what fascism is. Nazism is, is a brand of fascism that was Hitler's. And it came with all kinds of specific hates and, uh, and bigotries and plans for uh, world domination for a, a super mega race, uh, which was as German as possible. And uh, so when we hear talk from politicians about excluding from, the, uh, from power uh, anybody who isn't from their church or of their skin color, uh, then there's, there's a problem with, with fascism in America. Uh, and I'm not sure that punching it in the nose is going to work today the way it did in 1938. So I want to go back to right after World War I when Germany lost and yeah. they su suffered severe reparations. And that is the one the reason historians say that led to the rise of national socialism mm -hmm. in Germany. What led to the rise? What were the conditions in America in the 30s that led to this rise in terms of fascism and, and pitting minorities against majorities? It was all, always go after the others. The others right. in this case were the Jews. Today in America, the others can be a lot of different groups, but it's the same situation in different clothing in a sense. Right. It's, it's hard to imagine now, but in 1938, most Americans were against going to war against Hitler. He'd conquered most of Europe. Um, he was setting his sights on, on England. Was, the Luftwaffe was, was having their way with, with uh, that, that entire section of the world. Uh, and Jewish Americans knew that horrible things were happening in Europe because they were getting letters from relatives saying, you know, Uncle Jaime was picked up last Wednesday and he didn't come back. Right. In fact, a lot of people have been picked up. Nobody's coming back. So Jewish Americans knew in 1938 that there was already a war going on with, with Nazi Germany uh, and that the battle for the hearts and minds of Americans had already begun the second they hear German-American protesters carrying signs and uh, saying that America would be better off if it behaved the way that, that Hitler's Germany would. Uh, so as our story takes place, the Great Depression is almost a full decade old. Uh, nobody has any money. Uh, it seems like nobody's had any money in a long time. So it's easy under those circumstances to make us create a scapegoat. And the scapegoat was Jews in America. The, 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 the line from the Nazis were, was that Jewish Americans were all communists and they had tremendous clout and power, and they had all of the money, which, of course, came as a complete shock to actual Jewish Americans right. 
who are very poor, you know, to the, to the rag man whose horse just died in the street in, in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, I don't have all the money. I don't know what that's all about. So, I, you know, on the other side of the Atlantic, Hitler's armies are marching across Europe, but their sights set on, on Great Britain. And there were some German-Americans who saw supporting leader Adolf Hitler and the anti-Semitism as patriotic to their homeland. So the message, along with the ultimate solutions of the Jewish problem that led Jewish men to, to build an army, uh, that's, it, was, it was the brazen nature of the, uh, of the Nazi demonstrations. In New York City, it all starts in New York City. So and, I want to I go back to New York City sure, because I, sure. told, I told you before we started that years ago I interviewed Rich Cohen for his book, right. Old Tough Jews. So some of the names in your book I remember from Rich's book. And Rich had a – I think you may have even quoted him. This is really interesting. He once said, Jewish boys have their favorite gangsters the way yeah. the Catholics have patron saints. So that is, that is insightful. So that leads me into the next question, or you can take wherever you want to go. What were the origins of Murder Incorporated and who participated in it? Okay, yeah, Murder Incorporated is what's called a set, S-E-T-T-E. <clears throat> and it's a, uh, a secret society, a brotherhood of professional killers. And it, when the five family system of organized crime was set up in New York, the fear was that they would spend all the times fighting each other, having civil wars within families, and business wouldn't get done. So the rule was, if you wanted to have somebody hit, there had to be a vote among the, the five bosses. And if they said, okay, then a specific group of men would be used to carry out those hits. And the press called them murdering. Uh, According to, to Judd Teller in New York, they refer to themselves as Murder Inc. as well, but not that often. Right. So these were these were guys who represented none of the five families. They were, they were a mixture of Jewish men and Italian men. And they hung out in the back room of Midnight Roses Candy Shop in Brownsville, Brooklyn. And they're like firemen. They would sit around, play cards, wait for the phone to ring, and they'd be sent out on an assignment. But then they were paid a, a salary per week, and they got a bonus or, you know, every notch on their pistol. Uh, and in this way, freelance murders were, were cut way down and fights between families and within families uh, were kept to a minimum. So the, the system worked. So you're talking, in a sense, if you don't mind, you're talking about relationships. There's a very key relationship that goes through the entire book, which fascinates me, from the criminal world to the judicial world, the laws. Yes. yes. Meyer Lansky and Judge Perlman. Because Judge Perlman, I, I didn't know anything about him. He's, in a sense, is an American hero. Can you can you speak to that and that that coming together? Because I want you to get into the various reactions to the Bund meetings and the silver shirts, because you break it up between East Coast, Midwest. And the West Coast, and they're all kind of different, but the East Coast and Mid Middle West had the same kind of plans in place with, on the top of the pyramid, in a sense, Judge Perlman. Yes. Well, Judge Perlman is, he, well, he's, he's, he's born in Poland, comes over to America as, as a kid. Uh, he goes to public school in New York, goes to NYU, uh, NYU Law School, becomes a lawyer. Uh, spends time both in the New York State Assembly and as a U.S. congressman, 
Uh, he's in Congress when the Volstad Act, Act is repealed, so he votes to repeal prohibition and never allows his bartender to forget it. Um, he's barrel chest. He's into Jewish affairs. He's a party guy. And he is downtown Manhattan one day when there's a, a ceremony at the Maritime uh, Association going on on the steps of the U.S. Customs Building, gorgeous building in the Bowling Green area, southern tip of Manhattan. Uh, and while the ceremony is going on, here comes the German-American Bund Rally, which is coming into going to occupy Bowling Green. And they've got their signs. And there's a standoff. And for uh, a while, it, it, it looks like there's going to be a big fight. Eventually, the Americans move inside the customs building and allow the Germans to have their way. But it sticks in Judge Perlman's craw. Right. So he's sitting in a, in a saloon later that night. And when he's thinking about what to do, should I call the mayor? No. Should I call the FBI? No. The guy he calls the next day is Meyer Lansky. And he, he and uh, a rabbi, Rabbi Stephen Wise, go to visit Lansky. And he says, Meyer, you have some boys that might want to punch a Nazi. And Lansky says, I do. Um, but you understand, respectfully, Rabbi, Judge, I, uh, we can do better than punch. And Perlman goes, no, 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 no. The second you kill somebody, we lose the moral high ground. It has to be just Fists and non-lethal weapons. You know, are broomsticks okay? Yeah, sure, sure. Cut off cool cue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just don't kill them. So the, the, the next time the German-American Bund, uh, once a fairly nice organization that's been taken over by this creep Fritz Kuhn right. um, and turned into a pro-Nazi organization, they're having their rallies at the Yorkville Casino on East 86th Street in Yorkville, which is the German neighborhood of Manhattan. And they have parades up and down East 86th Street. It looks like the, the Macy's Thanksgiving parade, only with Sig Heiling and goose stepping going on. Uh, and they're very, very, they're convinced that there's just not going to be any repercussions for any of this. They have anticipated no blowback because mostly they're saying bad things about Jewish people and Jewish people are soft. They're not going to fight. So on this particular night, and it's Hitler's birthday, Hitler's 49th birthday, and they're singing songs. And up on the stage, there's an American flag next to the swastika flag. There's a portrait of George Washington next to the portrait of Adolf Hitler. Uh, Who's to say this is un-American? It's German-American Bund. It says American right in its name. Well, the gangsters surround the place on three sides. And when the speeches get to anti-Semitism, they attack. And they go in and they clean house. Uh, seven Nazis are sent to the emergency room. Uh, one, The worst injury is a broken femur because Meyer Lansky and one of his compatriots drop a guy out of a second story window. Lansky later said, we dropped a few guys out the window, but I suspect it was only one uh, because the others would have showed up in the medical report. So we had a lot of, a lot of guys who, who had needed stitches and cuts on their head and broken noses and things like that and a broken leg. And Lansky does a smart thing because neither of these two groups want to be in the newspaper. Right. Neither, neither want their photo taken. Uh, there's only one picture of gangsters versus Nazis at any point. Um, 
so what he does, he, he opens up a cardboard box filled with American Legion hats before the fight starts. It says, boys, put the hats on, have your fights, and on your way out, lose the hat. And sure enough, 48 hours after the fight, there's a report in the tabloids in New York saying, well, the NYPD believes that American Legion guys were the ones who went in there and fought. And the American Legion guys don't say it was, they, they don't, they don't uh, claim to be innocent because they, a lot of them fought in World War I and they don't like the idea of these guys becoming aggressive again in any way, you know, Jewish anti-Semitism or not. They don't, they don't like marching Germans. Uh, Lansky learned the hat trick from, uh, from Albert Anastasia, who used to send his hit teams uh, to commit hits in New York City wearing hats made in Chicago. And the, NYP, and the NYPD, instead of going to look for the killers, would say, oh, well, they're probably back in Chicago by now. And uh, meanwhile, the actual killers were in the back room of uh, Midnight Roses in Brownsville, Brooklyn, All right, so uh, for, playing, you know, playing cards. Yeah. For my Long Island audience, I used to live on the East End. I know Yapank. What was going on out there? Camp, oh, man. Camp Upton it became Camp Siegfried and then came oh, back. Boy. But – and I, I remember this part of the book later on. It's a whole chapter about uh, – Perverts and criminals yeah. that were were Nazis or members of the Bund. So just for the, my local audience, because we reach everywhere, including uh, some countries outside the continental United States, what was going on there? Well, uh, during my research, nothing upset me more <clears throat> excuse me, than the idea that there were Nazi youth camps in the United States of America. Uh, and there was one in Yapank. There, there's one in New Jersey. There was one in the Catskills. They had, oh, they were all across the country, uh, usually near to, but uh, outside the jurisdiction of major U.S. cities. And they would recruit young people uh, by handing out brochures on the street to parents. And there was nothing in the brochure that said anything about politics. It was learn better German, learn to play baseball, run and swim and lots of fresh air in the summertime for inner city kids always considered good. And the kids wouldn't know until they got there that they were going to be taught to goose step, sig heil and hate Jews. Right. Uh, just horrible. And as far as the German American Bund being populated by perverts, I suspect that you know, like they, they estimate that about 0.2% of all German Americans, a very small number, um, were into Hitler's philosophies. Uh, most German Americans, my own ancestors among them, were nice and didn't have a, have a hateful bone in their body. Um, but that 0.2% that joined the German American Bund and were into all of this talk, they tended to be uh, pedophiles and, and they have other other problems, you know, alcohol, alcoholism, things like that. Uh, but Yap Yapank, I could not get anybody in Yapank who really wanted to talk about the history of their town. So uh, you know, I, I, I'm having better luck in uh, in Southbury, Connecticut, where the they wanted to build a youth camp, uh, bought the land for it, right. and were digging a foundation when Southbury changed the zoning laws and kicked the Nazis out. And they're still so proud of it. They, you know, they're having conferences and stuff. I'm going to be lucky enough to, to speak this fall at their, uh, at their conference, telling them what, what might've happened in Southbury, Connecticut, had they allowed the Nazis in. You have to bring in the boys to clean house. 
The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. So once again, a quick reset. I'm Larry Davidson. Sure. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest is Michael Benson. He's a great writer, but you listen to this podcast. He's a terrific storyteller, too, so I appreciate that. The book is called Gangsters versus Nazis, How Jewish Mobsters Battled Nazis in Wartime America. We do know, based on my reading of your book, the mayor LaGuardia shut down all the demonstrations in New York, and they moved over to Newark. And this may, apropos of nothing, but I found this little story in New York Daily News, and it kind of says, this is interesting in terms of history, and it's titled Top. 20 New Jersey Deli Delight. That's the head, some headline I wrote or wrote that. Uh -huh. That's a little bit of alliteration, I guess. A century-old Jewish delicatessen was named one of the best Jewish delis in the nation. Hobby's Deli in downtown Newark made the mouth-warring list of the 20 best Jewish delis in the United States. So let's, with that fun fact that has nothing to do with your book, but I, I, I had to throw it in anyway, uh, what transpired with, I guess, with the crew going over to uh, Newark because um, there was a lot of bad things going on there when, they, when the Boone guys, German-American Boone guys, got pushed out of New York City. Yeah, LaGuardia made a, a bunch of rules they were no longer aware to along they were no longer allowed to wear their military uniforms no more parades so what what they did is they, they crossed the hudson river and started to have rallies in newark and newark had its own nazis and a large jewish community so there was already friction there uh even before judge perlman got on the phone and called longies wilman abner longies wilman right. who was the top uh, bootlegger and Jewish gangster in Newark area. Longy uh, had long been uh, a battler of anti-Semites. He, he got his name from as Longy because he was six foot tall and he was 13 years old. And if, if the, the, the Goyim would come in and pick on the, the, the Jewish boys, uh, they would get long to get the long one. And Longy would come in and you know, basically uh, take care of the situation. So it gets to be 1938, and instead of boys picking on other boys, we got men picking on men now. We got grown men picking on rabbis. So when, when Zwillman gets the call from, from Judge Perlman saying, would you like to, to, to punch some of these guys? He says, sure. <clears throat> but he doesn't have murder ink at, its, at his uh, fingertips, but he does have Nat Arno's gym. And Nat Arno, he puts in charge of his Minutemen. And they should be uh, they should be ready in sixty seconds to go battle the Nazis if they have to. And Arno is a uh, is a, is a ex boxer, um, and he has a, a bunch of guys in in his gym. There's Putty Hinkus and Abe Bain and Jaime the Weasel Kugel, Benny Bouncing Boy Levine. A uh, Betty Bouncing Boy Levine was called Bouncing Boy early in his boxing career because he bounced on his toes when he fought. He was called Bouncing Boy Levine late in his career because he bounced off the canvas repeatedly. But these guys could fight. And <clears throat> so they're, they're the first fight they have after Judge Perlman calls is at the Schwabenagel, uh, the, the Schwabenhall. In, in Newark and the inside the German Americans are having their rally and they're sig heiling and they're drinking a lot of lager 
and outside with their faces darkened by Bert Corker are the Jewish men. Now, what, what the Jewish men hadn't counted on was that none of them had tried very hard to keep it a secret. You know, they told their butcher, yeah, we're going to go punch out some Nazis tonight. And the butcher told everybody who came in, oh, yeah, they're going to be punching out Nazis tonight. So about 8 o'clock that night outside the Schwaben Hall, the entire Jewish community has come out to watch. You know, they've got folding chairs and eating popcorn. There's a couple old men rolling up their sleeves just in case they get a chance to take a shot at a Nazi. Uh, and Arno himself goes around behind the, the Schwaben Hall. He puts up a ladder which they snuck in through an alley. He throws a stink bomb in there. And then the, the, the Minutemen pick off the Nazis as they come running out. And for the rest of 1938, there are repeated fights in Newark and the gangsters win. The gang this time supplemented by a lot of professional boxers. Uh, they win every time. Also, when I say gangster and boxers, there's a there's a blurred line there. Anyway, right, in 1938, right. boxing was run by the by, by the mob, and boxers themselves, uh, in between fights and after their careers were over, often did work for the mob because you need tough guys uh, to do that kind of business. Uh, and interesting, Nat Arno, after Pearl Harbor, he enlists. He is among the troops who invade. Uh, Normandy on D-Day. He marches all the way across Europe, tours Europe the hard way, all the way to Berlin, and claims that on two occasions, he saw German POWs being marched in the opposite direction, who he recognized and who recognized him from street fights they had had in Newark, New Jersey. So really, you know, my book is about the, the little war before the big war. So I want to do, we got about 20 minutes left, and down the road if you want to come back, because I'm sure there's much more we can cover. I want to move toward a middle America, and I'm going to give you a couple of names. I'm, sure. going, to, I'm going to mention one name right away. I believe um, he was involved in Ohio, was a journalist. I think he may have went undercover. You can correct. Herb Brin. And the, reason, uh. and the reason why I mention him, you talk about six degrees of separation. He was there when RFK was assassinated. And... I interviewed and knew Pete Hamill, the great uh -huh. journalist Pete Hamill. Yes, sure. Pete was there too. And Pete said when that happened, he was right there. He had to switch from what was going on, be coming back to being a journalist and immediately reporting what he witnessed. And this man, Herb Brin, had a fascinating lifespan in terms of the course of America, but he touches base with somebody that I absolutely loved who since passed away, and that's the great Pete Hamill. Yes. Well, Herb Brin, uh, you said before that uh, that the judge, Judge Perlman, is uh, is the hero of the book. But the second hero of the book is going to be Herb Brin. Uh, Herb Brin is brought in by the Anti-Defamation League, who is is involved in in, in this as well. And they their job uh, is to put together spies to figure out. You know where the where the Germans are printing up their pamphlets when they're having their meetings and where, because after the riots in New Jersey and in New York, uh, they're they're not putting up posters anymore saying you know come to the rally next week. Right, uh, they're keeping it secret. So Herbrin gets recruited into the floor. He's a Jewish journalist. I grew up on Kedzie Avenue, uh, which is uh, the the main drag in the, in the Jewish neighborhood, and uh, he is assigned to infiltrate the Bund because he can, quote, 
pass for Gentile, unquote. You know, both of his sons told me, don't say he was blonde and blue-eyed because he wasn't, but he could pass for Gentile. And he would find out where the meeting was going to be, and then he would take that information to Davy Miller's gym on Kedzie Avenue uh, and give it to a fellow by the name of Sparky Rubenstein. Which is an interesting oh. name. I don't know if you want to give it away. I'm reading okay. this. I'm reading your okay. terrific book. And, of course, that's a Carl Folk name, right? Yes. Sparky? Yes. Um, yeah. People are going to be shocked to know who he was down the well, road. You know, I, I, I wanted to keep it a spoiler, uh, but my publishing my publisher really didn't cooperate much. They, they put the photo of him in the center section. So the, the, the reveal is, is, is revealed. In, if, if the first thing you look at are the photos, right. it's not going to be a surprise when you get to the end. So I think, I think at this point I've discussed it a few times. I think we can say that, you know, Sparky grew up to be Jack Ruby, the Jewish uh, nightclub uh, owner in uh, Dallas, Texas, most famous for shooting and killing Lee Harvey Oswald, the alleged assassin of JFK. So, wow, how many levels of separation now we got between the two brothers being killed? Um, <clears throat> Robert and John. Right, right. Uh, uh, so anyway, uh, Judd, uh, not Judd, Herb Brin and uh, Sparky know each other. And Sparky's best friend is Barney Ross who's a champion boxer, championship boxer, hung out in New York a lot, went to a lot of the fancy restaurants. After Jack Ruby was arrested in Dallas, uh, Dorothy Kilgallen got an exclusive interview with him in his jail cell because Barney Ross knew both Dorothy Kilgallen and Jack Ruby. And Jack Ruby was completely smitten. No, it was the lady from What's My Line. Oh, my God, she's right. here to talk to me. And she came out, of course, saying she was going to bust the Kennedy assassination case wide open, but didn't live to do it because she you know, died uh, somewhat suspiciously, I would say, in her apartment in New York City a short time later. Uh, but it, her Brin was known as a battler of fascists from when he was a boy. He was a, a lot like Longy's woman in that sense. Uh, famous story. He was on the Kedzie Avenue bus once as a teenager. I think there was a loudmouth anti-Semite on the bus saying what loudmouth anti-Semites say. And Herb apparently had had enough of this. Grabbed the guy by the collar, said, stop the bus. Bus stopped, dragged the guy off the bus into a nearby park, beat him up down the block and then back again, left him laying there, and then got back on the bus because the bus had waited for him. And as he got on the bus, everybody gave him a standing ovation. So that's one end of his life. Now, at the other end of his life, he's in his 80s, or Bryn, and he goes into a neo-Nazi camp out west someplace, one of these uh, the Aryan Brotherhood-type places, right. and dis distracts the, the receptionist. And while she's out getting him a, 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 a coffee mug that he's asked for, he rifles through every drawer he can get to, steals a bunch of documents, and gets five expose stories out of the deal. Uh, just an incredible, incredible journalist. You know, certainly one of my heroes uh, as a as a journalism major at Hofstra. Just the, to to be willing to put yourself in that kind of danger to get a, a, an important story against a very real enemy is very impressive. And he did it his whole life, and he was right in the thick of things in Chicago for the gangsters versus Nazis. So what I'd like to do with the time remaining 
let's move over to the West Coast. Before that, sure. though, um, Father Coughlin, I didn't oh know this, yeah. had 22 million listeners. Uh, I wonder, in your opinion, is there equivalent today in media? And I'm thinking about Rush Limbaugh, and now, unfortunately, I'm thinking about Alex Jones. Is there any equivalent today to Father Coughlin going back in the 1930s? Well, I, I think that your average evening on Fox News uh, might contain some of the some of the same rhetoric that we heard from Father Coughlin. Uh, I, it, it, but Fox News is, is not a Catholic priest. I'm still shocked. It's like next to the Nazi youth camps and in the United States of America, the fact that there was a radio priest on Sunday afternoons across the country who blatantly, you know, called Jews communists and said that they needed to be you know, cut out like a cancer from, from America uh, is it, just stunning and, and horrible to me. Um, and that, so it only goes to show that when Sparky and, and, and Herb are, are punching Nazis in, in Chicago, uh, anti-Semitism is in the very air. Right. So let's, let's go to the West Coast. Let's let, take a sure. look at California, L.A., you, and we talked about the East Coast, Middle America, but the situation was handled differently in the West Coast. You have a melange of mobsters, cops, Nazis, silver shirts, and everything else. So why was that handled differently? And this I didn't know. Is it true that there was a plot to hang? Once again, there comes that word hang. Mm -hmm. Movie moguls and stars in Hollywood. Is that true? That is true. Uh, this happened uh, several years before the gangster versus Nazi fights. This would be in the, earlier in the, in the 1930s. Hitler wanted nothing in America more than he wanted control of Hollywood. He figured if he could get Hollywood to make pro-Nazi movies, pro-Nazi propaganda, right. he might be able to win over America without firing a single shot. They would never come into the war. They would be his friend after he conquered Europe. They could, they could rule the, the world together, of course, with Hitler on top. So he puts a force of, of, of uh, I guess, uh, espionage, secret agent type guys into, into Florida with the idea of uh, taking over the movie studios. And they were going to do it by force. Uh, and the only reason we know this is because the second uh, it was found out that this was going on, a, uh, a Jewish lawyer by the name of L.L. Lewis put together a team of spies, uh, many of them women, uh, who infiltrated these German groups and found out that the plot was to kidnap and publicly execute uh, movie moguls, uh, the Louis B. Mayer, uh, Joseph Skank, um, the, the, the Harry Cohn, and as well as stars like Chaplin, Eddie Cantor. Uh, but the flaw in Hitler's plan was instead of putting down a, a, a force with one really strong leader, right. Uh, he wanted them all to be subservient to him. And what you had were four or five guys 
who were all competing to run this this glorious Nazi program in California that was going to completely change uh, filmmaking in the world. Um, so what what the Jewish spies did, especially the, the women who infiltrated, is they just started rumors going. This guy's saying this about you. This guy's stabbing you in the back. And eventually, infighting, just like the sort of thing that the the mob banished by having a, the murder ink, infighting undid Hitler's Hitler's plan to take over the movie studios. Like you get up to 1938. That's over. That has not happened. That's not going to happen. And the German-American Bund and the, and the silver shirts are reduced to uh, recruiting uh, homeless men because then is now uh, L.A. had a uh, conspicuous homeless problem. So they would go under the bridges and they would get all these guys and they would take them to a soup kitchen and feed them. And, and if they, they, they listened to the program uh, and Got, got with the uh, the philosophy. They would be uh, given a nice uniform and they're starting their own little army in that way. And there was a um, sort of a restaurant where there was the headquarters and they, uh, so Judge Perlman calls the guys who are running the mob in, in, in LA. And again, it's hard to tell the difference between uh, the, the, the cops and the, and the mobsters, and that's all mixed into one corrupt blend. But Judge Perlman calls the guy he knows, who's Mickey Cohen. And uh, Mickey Cohen uh, is probably most, his most famous anti-fascist move was uh, in an L.A. holding cell once. They put him in there with uh, two guys, two anti-Semites, and the guard walked away for five minutes. When he came back, the, the two anti-Semites were unconscious. And Mickey Cohen was calmly reading a newspaper. He said, ah, well, those, those, guys, those guys got in a fight with each other and knocked each other out. But of course, it had been Mickey just bonged their heads together like Superman on the old Superman right. TV show. He, he, here's something that I want people to read the book. Because I'm yeah. not going to tell you about what happened to one of the characters that he knocked out. One of the characters oh. that he knocked out ended up having a very important job mm. in the publishing world in New York City. You're going to have to read the book, spoiler alert. I'm not going to give that one away. What I am going to do with the time remaining, I am going to give you a date because I think about – he used to be Ricky Nelson. He changed his name to Rick Nelson, had the song The Garden Party. They all came to yes. The Garden Party. The date is February 26, 1939, and I used to go to The Garden on – 8th Avenue and 50th, because my uncle worked for Look Magazine. Oh, okay. I used to get the free passes to all the Nick games and all the sports. Nice. I used to sit right down, right down, right on the court almost because of my uncle. So I loved the old garden. I loved the entrance to the old garden. And when they had those big prize fights, watching people walk in and some of the documentaries, you can't replicate that. It was a very special time. But I put the date out there. What happened in Madison Square Garden on that date? Well, Fritz Kuhn, he's he's had his his local branches battered by the by the efforts of, of the of the Jewish gangsters and their friends. So he decides he's going to have one one last big moment. He's going to have a national rally. He's going to get past Mayor LaGuardia's rules. He's going to fill out all the paperwork. He's going to get all of his ducks in a row, and he was going to make the New York Police Department be his security. They were going to have a, they were going to pack the garden with, with Nazi-minded people from around the country, and 
Then they were going to have police at every entrance to make sure that nobody without a ticket could get in. And that, would, that way, there wouldn't be any gangsters there to punch anybody. Well, we don't even know if the gangsters were there, but everybody else was. By that time, by 1939, every, the, the, the attitude towards the Nazis had gone so bad, especially in New York City, that many, many groups were there protesting. Right. The streets were just jammed with people, and there were people... Two groups were fighting between each other, even though they were both anti-Nazi, just because they were all trying to share the same space. There's a lot of punching and violence going around, but nobody got into the garden to get at the actual Nazis, except for one unemployed plumber by the name of Izzy Greenbaum. Now, Izzy Greenbaum's grandson wrote to me recently, just before the book came out. And said, you know, I asked me, is, is my grandpa going to be in your book? I said, oh, your grandpa is one of the heroes of my book. Don't worry about it. Izzy Greenbaum is fed up with all these things these guys are saying about Jews. He waits till Fritz Kuhn's giving a speech. He runs up on the stage, pulls the plug on the microphone, and then screams something at the, at the crowd. Hitler has one ball, or whatever it is, he says. And he's immediately pounced down by Kuhn's security who then they pull down his pants. It's a big laugh from the Nazi crowd. Oh, right-wingers, what a sense of humor. They eventually, very quickly, actually, the, the New York police rescue Izzy, and they take him away, and they put him in jail. Izzy broke the law. And the next morning, he's in court, and the courtroom is packed with Jewish men, all of whom want to be the one to pay his bail. And... Uh, so instead of Fritz Kuhn getting his headlines about the, the great garden party, Izzy steals the show. And it's all about the guy who was courageous enough to stand up for, for Jewish Americans in the face of hatred. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really great story. And then, of course, not that long after that, a little more than a year later, maybe two years later, Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, and everything changes. Right. You know, the, the book takes place. One thing I should probably mention is this book takes place in a world in which there are no hate speech laws. So as long as the Nazis don't shout fire in a crowded room or uh, say something obscene in the Prurian sense, then they're not breaking the law. So the, the good guys break all the laws in my book. The bad guys break none of them. It's, a, it's the twilight zone between what's legal and what's just. All right. So I want to go back to Newark. Sure. One of the favorite sons of Newark was Philip Roth. Philip Roth wrote the book, The Plot Against America, which also became a really good limited TV series with a different ending. And I watched, I read the book, I watched the series, and I enjoyed both. The reason why I reference Philip Roth is I wonder during the heyday of the Bunds and the Silver Shirts and everybody else, were there candidates to be the American version or the American Fuhrer? Yes, I would think that the number one candidate to be the American Fuhrer would have been Charles Lindbergh. Uh, Lindbergh was an American hero. It was very, very difficult to get Americans to think anything bad about him. You know, he, he, it was like, he was like Neil, the Neil Armstrong of his day. Right. He had, he had flown across the Atlantic Ocean by himself. What a brave man, all to, to, for the progress of aviation. Uh, and then, of course, he has a son, and his son is murdered. He's kidnapped and murdered. 
Uh, it just the, the sympathy towards him was tremendous. Americans would have voted for him like that. But he was a anti-Semite and believed in, in what Hitler was saying. And with Henry Ford's backing and Lindbergh's political clout, uh, it's entirely feasible that they could have had a, uh, a Nazi candidate running for president. Sure. So, Michael Benson, this is what I do. We end every segment, for better or worse, what did I get wrong? What did I miss? What did I miss? You know, any kind of mistakes. So what did I get wrong? What did I miss? Anything else you want to put into the conversation before we let you go? Oh, boy, I, I don't know. I, I, feel, I feel like you're pretty thorough. Um, I uh, Let's see. We, we did Chicago. We didn't do the Great Lakes, Mo Daylitz. Right. Um, he, he would be probably the, the last of the gangsters that Judge Perlman called. And his men took care of mostly silver shirt uh, activities, which were run by... Uh, by uh, by uh, 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 Pelly, William Pelly, uh, who's one of the few guys from the story to uh, to land on his feet. But yeah, the Pearl Harbor changes everything. Uh, it makes the guys who are hiding behind the First Amendment all of a sudden are committing sedition. The Germans can no longer say those things. Uh, the uh, the Germans who are going to the rallies are a lot of them. Uh, they are drafted and sent to the Pacific, where their allegiances will not be questioned. A lot of the Jewish fighters, they're they're drafted or they enlist and they fight in Europe and they, they fight Nazis again, only this time with guns. And by the time the war is over, uh, the, the little scraps between the German-American Bund and, and the, the the Jewish gangsters really weren't thought of much anymore. It, it's sort of a, so, you, you like the word reset. Pearl Harbor, reset history. So I have a last question. For, uh, sure. I, I beg you for a quick response. I'll but try. <laughs> there were Japanese internment camps on the West Coast. Yes. A lot of people don't know they're in the mid middle America were internment camps for the Italians. How come there are no internment camps for German Americans in America? I well, see, I did not know about the Italians. Yes. Um, because I've been asked that question before, and I thought it was just a simple case of racism that Asians were easier to, to deny of their rights than, than white men because that's uh, the way white men who ran America in 1938 thought. Uh, I, I just think that we, we fought the dirty Japs in the Pacific. We fought Hitler in here. The, uh, the German soldiers were not demonized in nearly the same way. Uh, and probably not until the big reveal of the Holocaust did uh, the, the, the true evil of, of those who served Hitler come to light. My guest has been Michael Benson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. Pick this book up. There's a lot here. The book is titled Gangsters versus Nazis. Believe it or not, it's funny. There's, there's, that's why I picked the book up. The subtitle is How Jewish Mobsters Battled Nazis in Wartime America. Uh, Michael, you're one of my favorite guests. We'll have to come back again and talk about other stuff. This is great. All right, take care. I, I, I would love that. Take care. After the break, some final thoughts. I'm Larry Davidson. Be right back. Four, three. Two, one. God, I really got to thank Michael Benson. His book is called Gangsters versus Nazis, How Jewish Mobsters Battled Nazis in Wartime America. I want to just briefly talk to you about podcast, which we have. And when I think about podcasts, I think the world of podcasts is like a huge, huge forest 
with a lot of trees. And in this world, sometimes it's hard to find an individual podcast. I like to think our podcast has very large branches with a wealth of information. So my last hope for you out there who are listening to this, tell a friend, subscribe, download, not for me, not for me, but if you're following us over the course of 30 episodes, there are so many people who are amazing storytellers, authors, writers, singers, songwriters. I believe they deserve an audience for you to reach out to them and down the road, maybe to reach out to you. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Retire to her kitchen chair.